All right, everybody, welcome back to Passport Playlist at WSC 90.5 FM Columbia. We are so happy to have you here. This is probably the first interview that we've done since COVID struck like almost a year ago. Um, so we're very, very excited. Uh, we have a visiting alumni um, at USC whose name is, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Stuart Schrader, and I am coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland, where I teach at Johns Hopkins University. Really? Oh, that's so cool. So would you tell our audience what you teach in your field of study? Yeah, I teach courses on police and prisons, black internationalism, social theory, some other topics um, at, at Johns Hopkins University. And I got my PhD in 2015 in American studies um, from New York University. Um, before that, I, I, I studied English in college actually. And uh, I, I tried almost every major. I, I took courses <laughs> in basically every, everything that I could take a course in, settled on English, and um, ended up after college working. Uh, I used my English degree to become an editor. I worked as an editor for about a decade. Um, also did some kind of freelance writing on the side and did some activism and eventually found my way back into into school and, and started graduate school around 2008-2009. I love that. I love how you had the whole smorgasbord of college <laughs> major experience. I feel like that really probably made you a very well-rounded individual. Well, it, it was partially because I didn't know what I was actually interested in. So, um, and, and so I majored in English, but I think I, by the end of college, I realized that I wasn't even that interested in English even. <laughs> um, and I, I became more interested in critical social theory and history, and that eventually led me toward um, what, I, what I ultimately ended up studying in, in graduate school. But like I said, it, there was a lot of time in between where I did other stuff. That's really cool, though. You're like a walking like example to all those kids who are out there, like really scared to change their major because they're worried about whether or not they can handle it. Like, hey, you are. And you know what? You managed to graduate with something that you decided overall you weren't very interested in, but you still managed to, you know, go with the flow enough and like work hard at the same time where you get to something that you're <laughs> well, actually Well, I don't know how hard I worked in, in college. <laughs> <laughs> you have to work pretty hard. I mean, even the the act of changing your major itself requires a little bit of work. That's true. Um, plus, you got a PhD. That, <laughs> that yeah, I, I, I eventually I learned do. how to work hard. <laughs> yeah. um, so was there any moment where you just kind of knew, like, this is this particular type of research I want to go after for my PhD? Was there any moment that inspired it? Or was it just kind of like, everything culminating that you were like, I want to study um, this brand of like kind of sociology almost and like uh, the experience of like the militarization of um, domestic police. Well, so no, I had no idea that this was what I was gonna end up studying to be <laughs> honest. I, um, when I started my PhD, I, 
I was interested in topics in kind of urban studies. I, like I said, in, in, the, in the time between college and graduate school, I was doing some activism. I was interested obviously in the um, anti-war movement at the time, you know, in the 2000s, of course, actually today, um, the day that we're recording this is the anniversary of the massive anti-war march um, against the war in Iraq. Um, wow. Just as a coincidence, but so you know, I was I was interested in the, the anti-war movement. I was also interested in the anti-gentrification movement in New York City, where I was mm -hmm. living. This was the era when Michael Bloomberg was the mayor. Um, he and other you know kind of very powerful figures were really transforming the city in a lot of ways, making it I think less livable for the working class for longtime residents. Um, it was becoming a mm -hmm. kind of playground for the ultra rich. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of activism around gentrification. And also, as you, as you may know, um, Bloomberg oversaw the stop and frisk program of the NYPD, which ultimately was found unconstitutional toward the end of, of Bloomberg's um, term as, as mayor. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the stop and frisk program, which was was you know had a dramatic impact on the lives of of New York City and the kind of gentrification that was going on. These were two things that I was interested in, um, and so I thought I was going to study something. I wanted to kind of connect those two topics, which I thought were not actually being you know analyzed together. Mm -hmm. you know, there were people who were talking about stop and frisk or policing. There were people who were talking about gentrification. I think to the people who were on the receiving end of both of those <laughs> policies of the Bloomberg administration, of course they were connected, but, you know, to a lot of people that I was talking with, you know, in the kind of white anti-gentrification activist world, they weren't always thinking about the policing side of things. So I was trying to think of them together. But then, as I said, I also had this kind of interest in U.S. foreign policy, interest in um, the, the war that was happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on some level, I had an idea that there was maybe some way to connect all of these interests. Some of that grew out of my studies in, in college a little bit, but, but I didn't really know how to go about doing this, how to study policing and, and war kind of in the same um, framework. And, you know, I just had this, 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 this idea in the back of my head that there was some connection, you know, that there was a, a way that we could understand um, if not exactly stop and frisk, but just kind of aggressive policing practices that we could study them as an extension of overseas war making. But I didn't really know how to go about doing that work um, when I started mm -hmm. graduate school. And it, it took me some time to to figure out how to how to how to engage in the research and and think about um, studying you know military yeah. and police together. That's really cool. It's like, you know, you have like a little bit of an intuition, something telling you or like a little something you perceive and you're like, there's some sort of connection. I don't know what it is, but like, I'm gonna hunt it down. And obviously, like it has really come to be very important and very relevant to, um, I guess, our society, um, which I think is why they chose you as the visiting alumni this semester. Uh, for Maxey College at USC um, and to have their book club read your book, Badges Without Borders. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what that book's about, the goals of it? Sure. So Badges Without Borders 
came about when I started um, trying to <laughs> figure out this question of like, like what is what was the connection between kind of you know urban urban uh, development policies and and policing policies and in fact it turned out that um, badges without borders is not really about that at all <laughs> so I started trying to write that that or research that and I ended up moving in this historical direction so badges without borders is about the period from 1945 to 1975 whereas when I started I really thought I was writing something that was much more about the present so the book uh, analyzes on the one hand the way that U.S. Uh, policing experts influenced police in other countries around the globe during the Cold War. And then on the other hand, how that experience of um, training and equipping and, and upgrading police in other countries, how that experience affected policing back within the United States. So it, it kind of looks outward and then um, looks back inward again to try to you know, understand what is the connection between this, this U.S. foreign policy program of um, changing the police forces of other countries during the Cold War and how it how it affected um, policing. Exactly. Seeing like the intersectionality of it all, the way, you know, history writes the present and the present writes the future. Yeah. Um, that's really, really very interesting. And I would like just to backtrack a little because I know sometimes in conversations like these, people don't always understand the terminology um, or at least could use a clarification. Um, but could you maybe explain kind of the definition of militarization or like police militarization for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think typically when people talk about police militarization today, they're talking about the kind of gear that police use first and foremost. I think they're also a little bit talking about the training, but it's, it's, it's mainly this, this, kind of visual thing that I think most of us would recognize now, which is, you know, police wearing body armor, sometimes it's camouflage, they wear helmets, they carry, you know, heavy weapons, semi-automatic rifles, they, they mm -hmm. drive around in these kind of armored trucks. This, I think, is the classic image of police militarization. It's obviously a very intimidating and aggressive appearance. And so when people talk about this, they, you know, they're, they're talking about a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, usually, when we talk about police militarization, we're talking about something that has occurred since the 1990s. And the reason for that is it, it's usually attributed to a piece of legislation that, that was introduced um, in, in around 1997 which is called the 10, 10, called 1033. 1033 refers to a line in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the, the budget for the Pentagon, basically the Department of Defense. Um, 1033 was a, a line in that, that legislation that allowed the Pentagon, the Defense Logistics Agency, which is part of the, the Department of Defense, to provide surplus material to police agencies. So surplus material meaning material that's either excess or unneeded or somehow obsolete. So, so, so that came about in around 1997, but it, it even goes, goes back a little bit earlier to, the, to around 1990 when, when this first started happening, this effort uh, of, of um, the, the Department of Defense to give materials to 
to police forces. And, and I think there's kind of two things to understand about this shift that happened in the 1990s. So first, of course, was the end of the Cold War, which meant that the national security mission of the United States really was changing. Um, the military underwent some cuts and this, this posture that the military had had for decades of kind of confrontation with the Soviet Union, this came to an end. So you can imagine that, of course, uh, there is surplus material at this moment because suddenly the mission is changing. But the other thing that happens in addition to the change in posture towards the Soviet Union, which ceases to exist, is that the Department of Defense starts to get responsibilities for fighting the war on drugs, for um, stopping the flow of you know, illegal narcotics into the United States. Um, so all of a sudden the military, the branches of the military are, are taking on these new missions of, of controlling um, drug trafficking. And the idea is for giving that responsibility to the military, of course, the military has lots of resources to do it, but also the military, um, you know, proceed or, or Congress perceives that the military is needed to, in this, in this job because the you know, so-called drug cartels are becoming more and more violent and um, it's an it's a increasingly dangerous task. And so the, the connection there is that, is, is, is that the, not only is the Department of Defense engaged in fighting the war on drugs, but also that um, this idea of, of the increasing violence of, of that war means that the police need to be well-equipped to, to fight it as well. And so this is kind of the inspiration for affording that surplus material from the, the Department of Defense to police. And the one thing I would say about it that's, that's really interesting is that 1033 um, doesn't only give, you know, armaments and, and armored trucks to police. It gives all kinds of surplus material to police. So it gives police like, you know, bookshelves and coffee makers and, you know, all kinds of random stuff that the Department of Defense has, has too much of, you know, that they have excess. Um, so it doesn't all contribute to that kind of militarized appearance of police. But on the other hand, there are other ways that police can obtain that militarized appearance. Obviously, police can buy it themselves. You know, they can buy armor through their own budgets. Sometimes they use civil asset forfeiture when they, when they confiscate uh, various types of materials from, um, you know, criminal suspects or whatever. They, they can use that money to buy that, those materials. They also get it in other ways. They get it sometimes from other agencies of the federal government. Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice gives it to them. Um, or sometimes they even get it from philanthropic donations or, you know, foundation donations that, that will give it the, the materials. So, so basically the point is there's lots of ways for police to get this military style gear that contribute to police militarization. I think we tend to focus on the 1033 program because it's kind of a, a name brand program. Mm -hmm. um, it's only, but 1033 is, is, is only responsible for, um, transferring $7 billion worth of equipment. Of course, that's a lot of money. Um, you know, I wish I had $7 billion in my pocket, <laughs> but yeah. in the grand scheme of the budget of the Department of Defense, it's tiny. You know, the, the, the mm -hmm. most recent, you know, defense bill was almost a trillion dollars, right? So it's $7 billion over, over, 
decades is is actually not a huge amount, um, even though it's it's significant. Mm. Yeah, that's really wild. And obviously, like that's not 1033 isn't the only thing. But when they passed this bill with the 1033 in it, um, were there any politicians or any activists that you know of that kind of predicted um, these ramifications? Or was it kind of one of those unforeseen things that we like are looking at it in hindsight and like, oh, okay, yeah, I can really see. that's a good question. I think that there were some people who saw it coming, um, but on, on the whole, you know, to the degree that, that I think now lots and lots of people kind of understand that police militarization is a thing. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very obvious. It's like you turn on the TV and, and you, you kind of see it. And, and sometimes it's, it's depicted in kind of fictionalized shows. It's like, you know, I just turned on the TV the other night and there was a show about like, you know, uh, LAPD SWAT or whatever, right? And mm-hmm. um, which I'd never seen before. And I was like, oh, I've, I, I've, I've written about this. Uh, maybe I should watch this, this show. And then I watched five minutes and it was not very good. Anyway, point is that, yeah, I don't think that that people understood that it would be ubiquitous, but I do think that activists um, did did perceive it. There were there were a number of people on the one hand who were already critical of the war on drugs, who I think were were quite worried about this, and there were also a number of African American activists who were who were writing about it at the time, and and I think they they saw the um the 1033 program and and i don't think people really even you know understood that that would be the the name that we would refer to it by later on but you know they they understood that the 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 effort to put surplus materials from the department of defense into the hands of police just was the next stage in a kind of longer lineage of the so-called militarization of policing. And, and I would just say that, you know, the research that I d- did for the book for Badges Without Borders is really about the earlier, earlier moments of the militarization of policing that preceded the, you know, introduction of 1033 in the 1990s. So, you know, in, in, and in the book, I was, I was inspired by, um, you know, activists and, and black radical critiques of the, you know, coming out of the 1960s. And so, so my point is just that there have been people making these, these types of critiques and for, for people who were, you know, aware of this at the time, again, this was just the latest chapter in a kind of longer story. Mm, Exactly. All right. Well, I think that this is a really good spot for us to take a little music break and get into the playlist that you made for us. Uh, Dr. Schrader has really made awesome choices for us among a variety of genres um so i believe we'll be starting off with reggae um which is really cool very like a much of it's like a rebellious sound i really love it um but yeah so please stick with us and we'll be right back with our guest dr shader and now all right we're back with Passport Playlist WSC 90.5. Thank you for tuning back in uh, for our interview with Dr. Schrader. Um, we were just talking about um, the definition of militarization and police militarization in the U.S., kind of um, how it began, 
how it affects our daily lives as citizens. Um, but would you like to expand a little bit more on uh, how it kind of affects our daily lives, if it does at all? Yeah. You know, I think that on the one hand, part of the reason that police militarization has been able to proceed in the way it has, you know, again, according to the, the, the definition that I think most people use when they, when they use the term, which is about this highly aggressive, you know, appearance of police, the, the armor, the, the body mm -hmm. armor, the, the armored vehicles and, and, the, and so forth. You know, I think a lot of people assume that it's never going to affect them that it's just something that's happening, um, you know, elsewhere, it's being applied to bad guys, you know, terrorists or, you know, drug cartels or whatever. And then you have a moment like we had in the summer of 2020, when, you know, millions and millions of Americans were inspired to go out into the streets and decry racial injustice and, mm -hmm. you know, decry not just, you know, what um, happened to George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, you know, not just these kind of horrific stories um, in one city or another city, but really I think people came out into the streets saying um, things like this have been happening in our cities or our, our towns. You know, there were protests mm -hmm. happening in small rural towns, majority white or even all white towns. People were mobilized and energized and, um, you know, really moved to come out into the streets. And all of a sudden, in many places, they were confronted by these police wearing, you know, full on body, body armor. And, mm -hmm. you know, people are, you know, quote unquote, peacefully protesting, you know, chanting or holding signs. And all of a sudden, they're confronted with these very intimidating looking police officers. And all of a sudden, what that means is that this notion that, uh, you know, that the, these armaments are only going to be used on, on scary bad guys, suddenly that disappears because all of a sudden it's being used on people who imagine themselves to be engaged in, you know, kind of constitutionally protected First Amendment activities. So, mm -hmm. so that, that I think is, is the, the, the shift in, in many ways that, that happened in the past year that has kind of changed people's consciousness about it. But more generally, you know, studies have shown that, that police militarization does not make us more safe. And if anything, it might have the opposite effect. So one way that it can make us unsafe is actually by making it so that those, you know, so-called bad guys actually, um, you know, arm, arm themselves more strongly um, mm -hmm. because they, they think that police are going to wage war on them. So, um, you know, and January 6th might be an example of this. Um, I, I think it also uh, means that, that everyday policing activities tend to become more aggressive, more violent. So, for example, you know, s serving warrants, um, which is something that police do on a daily basis, um, oftentimes police will you know, show up to serve a warrant in, you know, these, this kind of full body armor and armed with all kinds of, of um, pretty uh, surprising forms of, yeah. of technology. And, and that is conducive to, you know, more violent encounters. Um,
there, there's a kind of understanding both among people who analyze this stuff and, and, and I think the, the police who engage in it, which is basically like, if you put these materials in the hands of police, they will find ways to, to use it, right? It's, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's not that, that we can just, just sort of trust that police will be restrained and not engage in kind of more violent and aggressive activities uh, because actually the, the mentality and the training of police officers changes when the, um, you know, so-called militarized gear is given to them. I think that for protests, you know, it, it, it means that constitutionally protected rights to free speech and assembly are restricted. Police... Uh, it's it's very hard to feel like you are engaged in um, free speech and you're not at risk for doing so when you're confronted with somebody wearing body armor. Um, mm -hmm. I I think it leads to a certain level of distrust um, in the in the government or in kind of so, you know social institutions more broadly. And, and that causes greater, you know, alienation. It causes cracks in kind of the social fabric. So I think there's lots of ripple effects, you know, even for people who might not have direct experience with police who are wearing body armor and camouflage. Um, just, you know, knowing that it's happening to other people, you know, friends, family, neighbors, or, you know, even people across town, I think, is, is very alienating and makes people, you know, wonder, like, do we actually live in a free society do, or do we live in a kind of more, you know, author, authoritarian society? And, and so it, it, has, it has a really um, pernicious effect that can be very direct in terms of causing encounters to become violent, you know, police encounters become violent, but it can also have these indirect effects in terms of negatively affecting, you know, social cohesion. I, you know, I think that, Ultimately, um, there are a lot of technical critiques that we can make of like the 1033 program, you know, we could say, and, and this is true that like the Pentagon doesn't stipulate that police have to be trained in using um, military surplus gear in order to acquire it through the program, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. the military gets lots of training and how to use the various tools that it gets. And then they might pass it along to the police without a kind of requirement that they're, you know, properly trained, right? Um, mm -hmm. Departments can say, yeah, we trained our, our, our officers on how to use it. And the Pentagon can't really certify whether that's accurate. That's a critique that a lot of people make. I think it's probably worth making, but it doesn't really get at the kind of, you know, fundamental issue, which is, which is not really about necessarily just the kind of um, technical aspects of, of, of the program. But, but it certainly is true that the program, um, you know, gives, it gives out a lot of material that, that police um, might not necessarily need. You know, this is another critique that you hear, which is like, um, these small towns, do they need armored trucks? You know, the kinds of armored trucks that were developed for protection of soldiers, you know, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, and um, I, I have this, this friend and colleague, um, Matthew Guariglia, who's from Connecticut, and he told me a story about, 
in Connecticut, this police department that got a, you know, mine resistant truck and they've basically never used it. They, so they, they'll take it out basically for, for a, a kind of, um, you know, like town celebration and where you can, you can come out and you can like check out the truck and, and see it as a resident of the town, you can like touch the truck, <laughs> but, oh, um, but you know, they don't use it. And, and maybe that's a good thing that they haven't used it in kind of operations. But, but again, it just, I think does raise these questions that lots of people ask, which is like, um, should towns be able to request this stuff when they don't necessarily have a demonstrable need for it? And oftentimes what they do, the police department will just like send a wish list to the Pentagon. They say, you know, we want a minor assistant truck and we want infrared cameras and we want, um, you know, rifles and this and that. Um, and we want, you know, a Keurig coffee maker and, and, and let's see what they'll send us. And yeah. if they send us the coffee maker, great. If they send us the minor assistant truck, great. You know, and we'll just, we'll take it because it's free. So why not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just, it's kind of wild when you really think about like the, the things that are available to the police source that, you know, are usually sometimes potentially forbidden even in international war, you know, to be used by domestic police against their own civilians. Um, so it's really crazy. Um, so I know your book and your research goes back to about like the 1940s. Um, could you perhaps give us like a little bit of a timeline for how policing evolved in the USA when militarization came into the picture and, you know, how we, I don't know, was there ever a time period that was a bit more like Mayberry-esque from like Andy mm -hmm. Griffith or um, when, when did we go from one to the other or was it always kind of like this? Um, yeah. That's a really good question. And, and this is maybe where I, I should should you know do my big reveal which is to say that i'm <laughs> i'm not very much in favor of the the term police militarization um really yeah which is which is the and the reason is that you know everything i've been describing about the kind of transformation in the way that police look and these you know new kind of legislative initiatives since the 1990s i don't think it it actually takes into account that um police have been uh, militarized for a very long time. In fact, before the 1990s. And, and, and we can't ever find a moment in history, at least going back to the beginning of the 20th century, um, and arguably even before that into the 19th century. But I, I, I tend to leave the 19th century aside because I don't know a ton about it. But there's no point in the 20th century when, when, you could, when you could say there was a clear, stark divide between police and military. They were always intermingled. The police experts who were um, responsible for creating the most well-established uh, and well-known um, repertoires and techniques and tactics of policing of the 20th century, they would have all said, if you could invite them on the radio today, they would have all said, what we want is for police to be more like the military. What, what did they mean by that? They meant, of course, they want them to be well armed. They want them to be rigorously trained, including in activities like, you know, marksmanship, they want them to be able to fire their guns accurately, just as, you know, soldiers are trained um, to fire their guns accurately. Um, they want them to wear uniforms that distinguish them from 
you know, everybody else on the street, just like the military. They want them to be disciplined, which of course goes along with training, um, and to follow a, a rank hierarchy, just like the military. So all of those features that we would recognize as common to police, you know, wearing a uniform, um, being called, you know, sergeant or lieutenant, uh, you know, ha having access to weapons and training and how to use the weapons and on and on and on. All of those came out of the experience of the military and, and many of the leaders of um, the policing profession over the 20th century were themselves veterans of the military, right? So all that's just to say that, that if we assume that the police suddenly became quote unquote militarized at a certain point, the historians like me will say, well, actually, if you look historically at the next or the previous period, you know, whenever that point is that you say, this is when the police became militarized. If you look at the previous period, actually, there was a lot of traffic between police and military. And so my book does that kind of analysis for the 1945 to 1975 period. And other scholars, you know, have written about the, say, you know, um, 1900 to 1945 period to show that even in the, you know, the period before when I analyzed this same type of thing was happening. And so it's, it's not to say that there haven't been dramatic shifts in what police look like. I mean, th there's no question about that. But, you know, I think the idea is typically that militarization means the police have become, you know, contaminated or deformed in some way by the influence of the military. And I don't think that that uh, critique is actually sustainable. I think that we, we, we fall into a trap if we um, think that we can kind of purify police in that way and, you know, remove that, 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 that influence of the military. And, 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 and the thing that follows, I think, logically from, from that argument, which I try to, you know, make in various ways, is that we therefore have to kind of ask, like, well, what is police, you know, fundamentally about, right? Um, because even if we could imagine, you know, stripping away the military influence from police, well, then would we be left with something that is not uh, you know, deserving of some of these critiques that people are making of militarized police. And I think that, again, this, this you know, raises some questions. I, I think that ultimately the police as an institution is based on a kind of power that is fundamentally anticipatory. Um, it always is diagnosing its kind of objects of interest as potential threats, right? And this is a way that the the kind of militarization aspect, this cosmetic change in what police look like, doesn't change police. This this fundamental you know diagnosis of potential threat, you know, doesn't doesn't change with with the militarization. Police is a kind of unanswerable power. It's not subject to negotiation. Um, one scholar, uh, this uh, sociologist um, from a few decades ago named Egon Bittner, he says that police are our society's mechanism for distribution of non-negotiable coercive force. And I think that that is a, is a really interesting idea. Like not, it's police are, they, they distribute non-negotiable force. Um, he says that police are 
uh, among every you know institution in our, in our society, police are in, equipped, entitled, and required to deal with every exigency in which force may have to be used. So we authorize police to use non-negotiable force. Police fundamentally anticipate threats um, and, they, and they act based on their anticipation of threats. I think that we can't eradicate that from police and militarization doesn't change that about police, right? So my fundamental takeaway therefore is that on the one hand, militarization has always been a kind of inherent property of police. There's always been this kind of quote unquote contamination. But on the other hand, militarization doesn't change the, the key core aspects of police. Um, it changes the appearance and it changes some of the tools, um, you know, and, and, and this has become most apparent in the post 1990s period or the war on terror period. Um, but it doesn't really uh, modify the very core of police and, and, the, and a critical analysis of police, I think, has to deal with that core. Yeah, absolutely. You're blowing my mind here, Dr. Schrader. Thank you for that really insightful response. Um, I think we are going to go on a really quick music break to get into that playlist a little bit more. Um, but thank you so much for everybody tuning in. Please stay tuned in um, and come back for the rest of our interview with Dr. Schrader. Um, and thank you for listening to WSE 90.5 and HD1 Columbia. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to this segment of Passport Playlist with our interviewee, Dr. Stuart Schrader, um, the author of Badges Without Borders. And we were just speaking about kind of the timeline of police militarization in the USA, or rather lack thereof, um, and kind of the way that it... Um, affects our response uh, to, or just the general setup of policing, especially in the United States. Um, but since we are an international show, I did have a few questions about uh, policing in other countries. Um, and so I wanted to know, I know with the Cold War, the U.S. was very, very, um, and still is, heavily involved in countries that were prone to, to um, electing communist or socialist or just left-wing uh, leaders um, and were you know, usually involved in things like coups, according to most historians. Um, but I just wanted to know, and like even now after 9-11, we're very, very heavily involved with um, instilling our own ideologies into uh, different countries. Um, and I was just wondering, like, can you give us some examples of how we've influenced like policing and uh, fostered police militarization in other countries? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in my book, Badges Without Borders, I focus on a program that was called the Office of Public Safety. And this existed in the um, 
50s, 60s, and into the beginning of the 1970s. It, it wasn't actually called the Office of Public Safety until um, 1962, but but the predecessor was basically the same same people, different name. So what what did the Office of Public Safety do? It provided um, training and uh, technical assistance, meaning help setting up the the kind of um, you know, core aspects of, of a police force. So like you think of a police force as having, say, like a traffic bureau and also a radio unit and also a crime laboratory and so on. So um, the Office of Public Safety would send advisors to other countries to help them set up those things. Also, of course, jails and so on and so on. Um, and so training is one aspect, technical assistance is the second aspect. And then the third aspect is providing equipment. So equipment ranges from, you know, everything from like handcuffs to, you know, motorcycles or cars to, of course, guns and, and tear gas and so forth. So the Office of Public Safety does this during the Cold War. Ultimately, it it sends this assistance to 52 countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America in the so-called third world. Um, and then it also brings uh, high-ranking police officers from 77 countries to a training academy that was in Washington, DC called the International Police Academy. And, and it was, and the number, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. I have to go back and crack open my own book, um, but it's something like 9,000. 9, um, police from other countries come here to get trained. So 52 countries um, assisted, 77 countries send officers. The Office of Public Safety claimed that the result of that was that they actually touched a million police around the globe. And mm -hmm. the reason was that when they trained these high-ranking officers in the United States, those officers would then go back to their home countries and kind of replicate the training that they had received. So they would train, mm -hmm. you know, more low-ranking police in exactly what they had learned in the U.S. And also, when the U.S. you know provided, you know, guns or, or handcuffs to to dozens of countries, those would get distributed to every police officer. And so, what that meant was that they touched again a lot of police around the globe. Now, were they trying to, uh, what were they trying to achieve with this program? As you mentioned, the United States during the Cold War was really worried about the um, influence of the Soviet Union, the influence of China, the influence of the socialist powers. And the United States wanted to prevent those uh, powers from basically expanding their spheres of influence, right? So one way that the United States thought it could do this, the kind of national security and intelligence bureaucracy was, what they said was, well, we, we can't go to war in, you know, every country, obviously. Um, that's not never going to work. Um, and, and if a country is already, already has a kind of socialist leader, if we stage a coup, it could backfire, right? Um, and and, and, and there, there were, of course, some successful coups that the United States staged in places like um, Guatemala and Iran, although the, the success of them in the kind of longer 
longer time frame that I think is is quite questionable. But at least they were it seemingly immediately su successful. And then that all changed in um, 1961 when the United States tried to stage a, a sort of coup in Cuba with the Bay of Pigs invasion. So after that, the United States said, okay, look, we can't overthrow socialist leaning governments. We can't go to war. So we need to just put a lot of resources into upgrading the police of countries that we think are at risk, at risk of um, having a, a socialist government. The police will gather intelligence, they'll control um, radical movements, they'll control student movements, workers movements and so forth. Um, and, and that will prevent you know, socialist or communist revolution and, and potentially even just prevent, you know, the, the election of, of socialist governments because they could weaken or neutralize the, the socialist movements in various countries. And so this is what they did in, in, through the Office of Public Safety. They, they trained police in how to, um, you know, control mass protest in how to gather intelligence on dissidents in how to interfere with political organizing, in how to stop smuggling of contraband. You know, contraband could include guns. It's like if you want to stage a revolution, you're going to need guns. But but contraband smuggling that they wanted to, to control was even just the sharing of ideas, right? So if if um, if if they set up new border control. Uh, offices and, and border patrols, then they might be able to, you know, search in the the um, car or, or the luggage of, of, a, of a suspected political radical. And if that guy is carrying a, a suitcase full of pamphlets that say like, you know, um, the, the, the only way to have justice in this society is through socialist revolution. Well, guess what? The police are going to confiscate those pamphlets and then they're going to tell the United States um, through, you know, channels of, of the intelligence apparatus, they're going to say, we confiscated, you know, a suitcase full of, of um, pamphlets that was coming over the border from, you know, country X into country Y. So this is how the Cold War was fought. You know, the Cold War was not I argue, simply this kind of stalemate between the United States and the Soviet Union, who both had, you know, nuclear missiles pointed at each other. Of course, that was absolutely true. And that's what made it cold, because the, the fear of, of going to war meant that the violence that might ensue was so bad, you know, it would destroy the whole planet, right? Nobody wanted that. Um, well, may, maybe almost nobody. Um, but, but beneath that, that stalemate, the Cold War was actually hot. It was very hot. It was very violent in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. And of course, we know about the U.S. war in Vietnam. I think many people will know about that. Um, it's a kind of indelible feature of U.S. history that I think most people know quite well. But the, the, the war in Vietnam um, in many ways came about because the police assistance program failed. The police assistance program was operating in Vietnam. In fact, after the peace accords that were signed um, to end the, the war that the French were staging against Vietnamese independence, peace accords are signed, country becomes independent. Who does the United States send to Vietnam first? 
it sends a couple of police experts. I mean, of course, it sends some other people, but it sends a couple of police experts to assess, okay, what is the status of the police in this new country that we um, want to, you know, make sure doesn't become a communist country? As early as, uh, you know, 1955, there are U.S. policing experts in the country trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sure this country doesn't become communist? And um, lo and behold, the United States gives so much support to the police and also to a, a relatively authoritarian leader in, in South Vietnam um, that, that people get really mad because the police are very repressive. The government is very repressive and authoritarian. And it stokes the, the revolution. It stokes the, the forces of kind of... Um, you know, left wing and, and nationalist and, and socialist political power that the United States is afraid of in the first place. And that leads to what we tend to refer to as, as the Vietnam War, but it's actually a very complicated, you know, it's, it's wars, the multiple wars happening kind of simultaneously. And, and you know, one of them is, is a civil war. And the civil war, I would argue, came about because the United States, in part, made the police in that country so repressive that, uh, people got fed up and they said, you know, we're, we're sick of this and we want, we want to change the, the government. So mm -hmm. this same type of assistance was offered, you know, to many, many countries. And in many countries, it had a very similar effect. It, not every country had the experience that, that South Vietnam did, um, where it broke out into, into war, um, you know, kind of full scale, scale war in that regard. But, but the, the, the United States did increase the repressive capacities of a lot of countries through mm -hmm. this um, program called the Office of Public Safety. And so, so the book uh, that, that I wrote, you know, I, I try to analyze how, how this happened. And then I also look at um, how this, these, these repressive practices reverberated back home. And, and, and what I found was that many of the people who were involved with the Office of Public Safety ended up becoming really quite credible experts in the United States. And as you know, in the 1960s, there was uh, basically a social revolution in the United States as well. You know, there was the, the civil rights movement and the black power movement, the anti-war movement, um, women's liberation movement. You know, there were lots and lots of, of movements happening. Um, and, and those experts in policing who had been advising other countries on how to prevent revolution in their countries, they started giving advice in the United States to police about how to prevent revolution at home. And, and that led to the expansion and intensification of police power in, in the United States. And typically we call this the war on crime. Lyndon Johnson, the president, he called it his war on crime. Um, but what I show in, in the book is that the, 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 the idea for the war on crime in many ways um, replicated what the United States was doing in other countries around the globe in terms of trying to bolster and expand police power. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Um, so we talked a little bit about the countries in Latin America and South America and Africa and Asia that were all affected by um, U.S. international uh, militarizing of their local police forces and instituting these things. Um, 
were there any or are there any examples of countries um, that have intentionally militarized police? Um, and if there are, like, are there any um, comparisons of how they fare in terms of crime rates and general safety of citizens compared to the USA? Because I know a lot of people, um, when it comes to this topic, when it talks about um, trying to demilitarize police or lower the um, level of power of police are very, very concerned about um, the level of crime or violent crime or citizen safety. Right. Well, the United States is a violent country. I think there's no way around that. Um, there, there's a lot of violent crime as, as compared to other, um, you know, say OECD countries, countries that are, that are um, at similar kind of levels of economic output. Um, you know, of course, the United States is, is at the top of the list in terms of economic output. And it's also at the top of the list in terms of, you know, violent um, crime. <laughs> so I, I, I think it's also important to, to say that the other top of the list that the United States is at is, is incarceration. The United States incarcerates more people, you know, the total number as well as per capita, more than any other country in the globe. I think the, the data on China are changing we don't know exactly. We're, we're not totally sure if, if the data on China are reliable, but even even um, if they are, the United States still outpaces China. I think. So, I think we you know we need to ask ask kind of fundamental questions of of you know what is the connection between the you know crime rate in the United States and the incarceration rate. And it's actually a very difficult question to answer because the crime, the violent crime rate, especially the homicide rate, it peaked around 1990 um, in the United States, as well as in other places. And it's gone down since then. All countries, not all countries, but many countries um, in Europe experienced a decrease in crime from, the, from say 1990 to the present. But only the United States has had a continually increasing level of incarceration since 1990, right? The, the, the rate of incarceration in the United States started skyrocketing around 1980, kept going up after 1990, and basically only leveled off and even started to decline maybe in the second Obama administration. And, and the decline has only been very small. So the United States incarcerates in jails and prisons approximately um, 2.2 or 2.3 million people. Um, that's a huge number, and and crime uh, overall has 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 continued to decline, even as that number has remained high. Right? I don't think that um, anybody has a very good explanation. You know, there's a lot of social scientists who have done a lot of very sophisticated analyses of this, and when you kind of like step back, I, I think we we still don't really know what makes crime go up or down. Um, and we don't know exactly why crime um, has declined so dramatically since, since say, you know, 1990. Um, but, you know, other countries have very different models of policing. You know, I think we could talk about other countries in Europe where police don't necessarily carry guns. You know, the, the immediate response that most people will say is like, well, 
um, most citizens in those countries don't have guns, unlike in the United States, where in the United States, there's a lot more guns. I, you know, I think that that's, that's valid up to a point, but it, it also, I think, does need to be said that um, even though there's a lot of guns in the United States, not um, the, the amount of guns is not kind of evenly distributed. You know, something like 30% of the country owns guns, and then the vast majority of guns are owned by an even smaller percentage because some people own a lot of guns, and a few people own one gun, and most of the United States owns no gun. So, you know, it, it, like, it's, it's absolutely true that there are a lot of guns in the United States, um, but I don't think that that alone is enough to explain, you know, why police are, um, are armed or, 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 you know, that police in um, Europe are not armed, right? Because the idea that, that, you know, on average, somebody in, you know, a police officer in Europe is likely to encounter somebody without a gun. I think in the United States, that's also true on average, just based on the, the numbers of how guns are distributed. Again, you know, thinking about Europe, police in Germany undergo a very different type of training from police in the United States. They might undergo like two years of, of training um, that's more extensive, more rigorous than in the United States. In the United States, you know, you might get like six months of training and then get out onto the street. And then when you get on the street as a police officer, the first thing that, you know, a veteran will tell a rookie is, okay, you spent six months getting trained. Now, now your, your real training begins. Forget everything you learned in the academy. Forget everything that's in the rule book. Now, now you, you're going to really learn. So I think that, that those kind of cultural differences are significant, um, as compared to some other countries. Um, I, I think there's also another difference that is worth taking into account, which is that, you know, many countries around the globe um, in Latin America and Africa, there are indigenous forms of justice that, you know, don't rely on what we would consider kind of US style or European style policing or prisons. Um, this is something that I talk a lot about in, in, in my classes at, at Johns Hopkins, you know, doing this kind of comparative analysis of other countries where, you know, they have US or European Western style police, but some communities have tried to come up with um, modes of um, justice and re repair and, and, and restitution that don't rely on, on those systems um, as, as, a, as an alternative. And, um, I think that those those models have been really inspiring to some people in the United States, but um, they're not as perhaps widespread as they should be. And oftentimes they develop in other countries, you know, they have longstanding traditions and, and inheritances, but, but there's been a recent effort to kind of, you know, reinvigorate these, these traditional modes of, of justice and repair and, and restitution um, because the, you know, U.S. style or Western style police are, you know, are corrupt and are violent and are brutal. And so people just get fed up and say, you know, we don't want this anymore. We want to return to the way that we, um, you know, fixed social problems in our communities before the imposition of, of you know, U.S. style police or, or something like that. So I, I don't think that there is, um, I don't think that there is an easy lesson 
I don't think we could just, you know, go to another country. We can't just go to Norway and say, oh, Norway does X, Y, Z. Let's just import what Norway does to the United States. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. But at the same time, I think that the United States should uh, be more willing to look around the globe at other places to try to find alternative methods. Because I think that everybody more or less agrees that what, what we're doing in the United States isn't working. I think police would agree that it's not working. Um, as much as, you know, abolitionist, uh, you know, critical, radical scholars would, would agree that it's not working. You know, they, they have very different accounts of what's not working and why it's not working. But I, I think there's, there's actually a, a surprising agreement that the, the current police and incarceration system in the United States is not, um, is not achieving justice and is not fixing social problems. So the, the question then becomes, well, what do we do about that? And that, that is not, not an easy question to answer. Absolutely, and that is one of the questions I'm gonna throw at you right now, very sorry to say. Um, but yeah, so like you said, like with Norway and stuff like that, like obviously they have like lower like violence rates and stuff like that, um, but they also don't have the same very intricate kind of um, history that we have that involves racism, um, that involves, well, homophobia is over there too, I assume. Um, and as well as sexism, but they don't have that very unique intersection that we have where all of these come to culminate. Um, and obviously just being in a different geographic location, having a different history will cause those things to take form a little bit differently in ours. Um, so in your professional opinion, uh, what would it take to demilitarize policing in the United States? Or do you think it's just too antithetical to the concept of policing um, to demilitarize it? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So obviously, as, as I was saying, I, I do think that there is, there is something fundamental about the, the history of, of policing, which is about the, the kind of interactions between police and military um, that goes back quite a long way. So, that suggests that demilitarizing the police would be quite hard. On the other hand, <laughs> using the more contemporary definition of police militarization, by which we mean the you know acquisition of surplus military materials from the Pentagon and you know wearing body armor, wearing camouflage, all that cosmetic stuff, you know, I think that that becomes an easier um, goal to achieve. I think we could demilitarize the police in that sense. Um, certainly the 1033 program could be eliminated. Um, Congress, so, so the Obama administration after the initial Black Lives Matter protests of 2014-2015, of, um, the, the Obama administration tried to rein in 1033 a little bit. So they said that, you know, certain types of armed aircraft, high-powered weapons, um, you know, certain implements that the DOD had, they couldn't give to the police. Obama says this, um, you know, they say that if, if, if there is a need for new training that goes along with the materials, then police can't have it, right? And then in, in 2017, uh, President Trump and, and the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, they basically lift those restrictions. And it's part of Trump's overall repudiation of 
um, you know, the Obama administration. But then something very interesting happened at the very tail end of, of the Trump administration, which is that Congress, you know, signed a new defense authorization bill and it modified 1033. And what it did was to make permanent in the, the defense bill the restrictions that the Obama administration had placed. So this is a small change. It's a good change, but it's a small change. I think that other changes are possible. You know, the 1033 program, the way it works um, is that technically a lot of the materials that the Pentagon gives to police remain what it calls controlled. Controlled means it's still the property of the Department of Defense. So, you know, if I loan you something, but I say, you know, this is still my property. Um, and I say, you have to give it back to me. Well, you know, most likely you're going to give it back to me, right? <laughs> so <laughs> the Secretary of Defense tomorrow, I think, could issue a, a, an order that says that all controlled property that is the property of the Department of Defense and is now in the hands of police around the United States has to be returned. Hmm. You could do that. Um, and I think, you know, the, these types of change, act, changes that are actually in the law are possible and should happen. And in fact, when, you know, the Pentagon, you know, reacquires that controlled material, it should, you know, send it to the scrap heap and get rid of it. I think that the reality is that all of this material that, that comes through the 1033 program, it's excess material, right? So that I think also points to some changes that need to happen. The, the Pentagon budget is so big and so bloated that they have so much extra stuff lying around that they can just give it away for free. So I think that also you know, indicates some places where there's a need for kind of transformation on a fundamental level. Yeah, perhaps a bit of waste. Exactly. Yeah. Get rid of some of this waste, you know, that rather than just passing it along to police, like, let's, let's just stop the waste in the first place. Um, but, but I, I would also say that, you know, we shouldn't be too, I don't want to seem glib about this, because there are a lot of people who are, are deeply invested in the militarization of, of policing in these terms. Um, I think that, you know, police officers themselves have gotten really into it. They really like having access to this kind of gear. Um, certainly the manufacturers of this type of gear, they really love that both the Pentagon and um, police agencies buy it. You know, they make a lot of money on this stuff. So it, that those are two kind of groups that are very, um, that will be very resistant to changes to it. And, and I think it also needs to be mentioned that voters like it. You know, as much as some people have been horrified by the appearance of police in this kind of intimidating and aggressive gear, there are also a lot of people who support it. And so, you know, taking into account all of those parties that support this does make it more challenging. But I do think that the, the energy of you know, the protests of 2020 is on the side of trying to reduce and retract this. Um, I, I, I did some research on a, a kind of little known story in the 1960s and 70s of a police chief who wanted to demilitarize his police force. And, and he, his name was Victor Sazankis, and it was in Menlo Park, California, which is a, a town in what is now called Silicon Valley. 
a very mm -hmm. now a very wealthy town. Um, you know, the police force there wasn't super militarized. You know, it didn't it didn't look like the police of today. But he was just like, you know, look, the problems that we have in our town are not going to be solved by, you know, a really aggressive police force, a really heavily armed police force. Instead, they're, they're going to be solved by making the police have better relationships, you know, with the community. And, and some of the racism in our town will be ameliorated if police aren't intimidating, right? So he, he came up with this idea of dressing cops in, in these kind of hip uniforms where they wore like blazers and they, they had like long hair and cool shoes and stuff. <laughs> and, and um, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot of, he got a lot of attention, you know, he got a lot of national press coverage for saying, okay, police should dress in, in cool clothes and look really down to earth. Mm -hmm. um, and he also said, you know, I'm going to go even farther than that. I'm going to demilitarize police by getting rid of the titles, you know, going back to what we were referring to earlier, getting rid of the titles like sergeant, lieutenant. lieutenant. Um, instead, they're going to be, you know, named, their, their title will, will refer to what they do in their job, right? So they will be like the, the, the traffic officer or the, the forensics investigator or whatever. That will be their title rather than this kind of yeah. rank hierarchy. Well, guess what happened when he did this, right? There was a huge backlash, you know, something like a third, I can't remember, maybe even more than a third of the cops just quit. They were like, no, we want to wear, you know, the traditional uniform. We want to be called you know, sergeant or lieutenant, right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, that I think that has to be um, taken into account that cops are invested in this, in this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this is even crazier, the, um, the local far right activists got really mm -hmm. mad at, at this police chief, Sizankis, who, who was doing this demilitarizing work. And they started doing basically terrorist attacks. They started you know, really? setting off bombs because they wanted to prove that the police needed to be militarized, right? So, you know, in, in 2021, where we have a very active and aggressive and intimidating and scary far right, I think this is, this is a, a real risk. So that's not to say that um, I'm not in favor of trying to demilitarize the police. And I think that- yeah. We should do this, but I think we also need to be aware of like, what are some of the forces that might be opposed to demilitarizing the police themselves, the right, you know, the far right might be opposed and, and the arms manufacturers, um, the, the gear manufacturers, they might be opposed. So, you know, it's, it's complicated, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, be pushing to, you know, mm -hmm. um, disarm the, yeah. the police in some ways. Um, you yeah, know. just be more open to taking the more nuanced approach, not just abandoned approach altogether. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, that obviously in 2020, the slogan that everybody heard um, was defund the police. You know, mm -hmm. I think that um, there's, there's a lot of different ways to interpret that, that demand. Um, I, I think that this, you know, this conversation about um, demilitarizing police goes hand in hand with that. It's about reducing the kind of scope and scale of policing, reducing the availability of highly armed and potentially violent solutions to social, social problems and instead offering different types of um, solutions to social problems. You know, the, the defund demand is, is accompanied by an investment demand in, in investing in, you know, other ways to solve social problems rather than just, um, you know, throwing police in, in armored trucks at, 
at a at a social problem. Instead, let's let's find better ways to to deal with them. And of course, it just points to the the reality, which is that you know that we have problems in in our society. We have poverty. We have racism. Um, we have all kinds of of social inequality. Um, these can't be solved by police, right? And if anything, mm-hmm. you know, police and prisons as they exist right now, they exacerbate these problems. Mm-hmm. And we can't fix them by, you know, fixing police alone. <laughs> we have to fix them, yeah. you know, in, in a kind of broader social context. So, so even as we, I think, you know, even as I think that the demand to defund the police is um, a crucial one and, and really should get a lot of serious thought and attention and is getting a lot of serious thought and attention. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people making that demand also recognize that um, even, you know, quote unquote, defunding the police is not enough. There needs to be a kind of broader social transformation to deal with these problems like social inequality and, and, and poverty and racism and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a big task. And I think we shouldn't, um, you know, we shouldn't be, uh, we, sh- we shouldn't mistake how, how large uh, uh, and multifaceted and challenging the problems are. But at the same time, we shouldn't be, you know, scared away from trying to do something just because mm-hmm. it's a, a large and complicated and challenging problem. We shouldn't let it intimidate us back into kind of our bubble of privilege um, to the fact that, you know, we as white people or, you know, just non-people of color typically don't have to deal with this firsthand. Um, we should keep our hearts and our minds open and hear what people have to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this interview. It's been so enlightening. Um, thank you for answering all my questions with such patience. We really appreciated having you on the show. Thank you. I really appreciated your question. It's been great to be here. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, that was our first interview of Passport Playlist since COVID has struck. It's great to get back on the horse. Um, And yeah, so thank you so much for listening. We're so happy to be able to provide this interview to you guys. I know this has also been a subject that's been, you know, uh, on everybody's mind uh, for, you know, decades, but particularly with the last summer. Um, So we're really excited to provide this opportunity um, to kind of grow together, to kind of learn together. Um, And thank you for staying with us. All right. Thank you for tuning in to WSC Passport Playlist.